Amen. You are worthy to be praised with my every thought and deed. O great God of highest heaven, glorify your name through me. With everything that we do, every thought we have, every attitude we have, every emotion, every action, put yourself on display. Um, How did we do doing that last year? Um, How glorious did we show Christ to be? Um, How great of a treasure did we show him to be? And I think if we're honest with ourselves, when we come to a new year, we look back and most often we look back with immense discouragement, just thinking there is so much that I failed at. There is so much that I struggled with. There are so many things that I could have done differently, better. There's so much sin in the past. And that's why we love our Savior. Our Savior brings new beginnings. Our Savior brings a new creation. Ultimately, we're looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth when he makes all things new. And we are the beginning of that. Christ has regenerated our hearts through his spirit and has given us life. A new year is a great time to look forward as well. We look back and we see, okay, how did we do? What was the last year like? And we're also looking forward with excitement to what the Lord would have for us in the coming year. How was this last year for you? Was, was it filled with green pastures? Was it filled with deep valleys of darkness? Was it joyful? Was it painful? I wonder what this next year will hold for us. How are we supposed to follow our Savior as a good shepherd taking care of his sheep? What does that look like to follow him? If you have your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to turn with me to Psalm chapter 23, a very, very familiar psalm read over hundreds of thousands, if not millions of soldiers as they have given their life for their country Um, read over their bodies as they are dying. This is a psalm that many non-believers are very familiar with. This is a psalm that um, we have grown so accustomed to seeing, to knowing, to reciting. Many of you probably have it memorized that sometimes when we know something so well and are so familiar with it, it breeds contempt. It breeds a sense, that familiarity breeds a a sense of, I already know this. And this morning, I want us to dive back into Psalm 23 and, and look at it with the perspective that I believe David has as he's writing. This psalm, the most familiar of all psalms, is one that we tend not to truly understand the perspective with which David has as he's writing. It's about following God, not during the green pastures. Yes, it has green pastures, but it's about following God through the painful times. Yes, it's about the green pastures and the good times, the times of blessing and of plenty, But I believe that the psalm is even more about the valleys and the hard times. It's about the gift of suffering. As Philippians chapter 1 verse 29 says, Paul tells us it has been gifted to you for the sake of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer. I think David is in the middle of that gift of suffering as he writes. It's about the perspective of trusting the shepherd who cares for us in the midst of the hard times. Where do I get that? If you look at Psalm chapter 23 verse 1, David writes, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then he says this, he makes me lie down in green pastures. All pronouns in verses 2 and 3 are in the third person. He does this. He makes me lie down. 
He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. These are all the things that he does, and I know that he does them because he did them. He has done them. So I know my Savior, my great shepherd, does these things. He has done all of them. This is what he does. This is who he is. But then there's a change. In verses 4 and 5, David changes from the third person, he, 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 to the second person, you, you. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil and my cup overflows. So he does these things. He's done them before. He did these things. And now in the middle of the valley, in the middle of the valley of deepest darkness, you are doing this right now. But David doesn't end there. Verse 6, Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So I believe David is looking backward and looking forward as he's stuck in verses 4 and 5. In the middle of the valley of the shadow of death, he writes saying, this is what God has been for me, what he has done for me, and this is what he promises to do for me because he is my good shepherd. What a perfect psalm for us as we come to the new year. We look back, we're stuck in the present, and we're looking forward to the new year. I believe that David will give us three very amazing truths, very uh, biblical perspective of how we are to view our great shepherd and walking with him in the midst of whatever life would have and whatever God would allow us to walk through. So what I want to do is I want to ask God's blessing on our time and dive deep into this psalm and see the faithfulness of our good shepherd. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so thankful for the opportunity to come and to open your word and to gather together and to hear you speak to us. And I pray that your spirit would be pleased to do the work of affirming and confirming these truths in our hearts, even as they are being said. God, I pray that my hearers would hear a much better sermon than I preach because they wouldn't hear me preaching. They would hear your word thundering forth with confidence, with boldness, with compassion. And they would hear your spirit bringing those words to bear in their soul such that it's not me speaking, it's you speaking. God, I know that for as many people as we have in this room, there are some who are in the middle of a, a green pasture. And God, I pray that this would be an encouragement to their soul as they see you working and even the sovereignty that you have in allowing them the green pasture. And they would cling to you and not to the green pasture itself because there's coming a day when the valley is approaching and the green pasture will be gone. God, I know that there are many in this room that are in the middle of the valley of deepest darkness. And God, I pray that you would enable them to grab on to the moments of green pastures in the past. But again, not grabbing on to those moments with nostalgia that will not profit anything. Grabbing on to those moments because they prove that the great shepherd is working not for their harm, but for their good. I pray that you would help us all to be able to look back at the green pastures and look through the green pastures to the great shepherd who brought us there. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your law, both now and forevermore, as we follow you, our great shepherd. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And all God's people said, Amen.
So three main points from the text, <clears throat> verses 1 through 2, or verses 1 through 3, we're looking at the past. Verses 4 and 5, we're looking at the present. And verse 6, we are looking to the future. So let's start with verses 1 through 3. And we're going to say it this way. If we're to walk with our great shepherd in a way that is pleasing to him, we need to, number one, remember our shepherd's provision in our past. Remember our shepherd's provision in our past. Verse 1, the Lord, Yahweh, his covenant-keeping name, is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. The first question that immediately jumps off the page that we need to answer is, is God your shepherd? Because if he is, all the things that David is going to say are true for you as well. If he is not, then these truths are not for you this morning. They can be, though. The Lord, Yahweh, a personal covenant-keeping relationship with the God of the universe can be yours. But you must know, believe, and receive the gospel. As we end 2017 and as we enter into 2018, can I ask, do you know the gospel? And I'm not talking about knowledge as far as intellectual head knowledge. I know that all of you know with an intellectual understanding what the gospel is. I'm not asking, do you know it? Have you heard it? I'm asking, do you cherish it? Is it your life? Have you heard of a holy God who created you, who owns you, and yet at the same time allows you to make decisions for yourself? And have you heard, you know experientially of your own sin that you say, thanks God, but no thanks. I want to do what I want to do. Do you know the depth of your sin? Have you heard of the penalty for your sin? The penalty for my sin because I have sinned against a holy God is separation from him, judgment, his anger, his wrath rightfully due me because of my sin and you as well. The Bible says very clearly that the wrath of God abides over sinners. But God does not want any to perish. He desires that all would come to repentance, to believe, to trust in him, not just an intellectual understanding, but a belief that would grab hold of the gospel as your life, as your greatest treasure. The way that you open gifts at Christmas and you were excited, oh, this is exactly what I wanted, and you hold it and you open it. And if you have kids, you know this is times a thousand when they scream with joy and they're so excited. We open the gift of the gospel, and if we go, oh, that's, that's cool. We see it as gym socks for Christmas. Yeah, that's fine. Thanks. I guess I needed that, but I don't really want that. Have you heard of a holy God who loves you so much that he sent his son? The entire reason we celebrate Christmas, he sent his son to live a perfect sinless life that we needed to live to get to God, but we could never live because of our sin. And then God the Father punishes Jesus at the cross. He takes our punishment and he throws it on Jesus so that he can take Jesus' perfection, his holy life, and give it to us. If you understand your sinfulness, if you understand the penalty that is coming for your sin, and if you understand the love that Jesus has for you such that he would come and he would die in your place for your sins, rise from the dead and offer that to you, a clean slate, guilty no more, 
forgiven, reconciled, adopted now. Even as we sang in Be Thou My Vision, we are now calling God our Abba, our Father, our Daddy, and we are calling Him, we are called by Him, His sons and daughters, those that He loves. The same words that He says to His son, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I've never said that to my son. You are my son, Ethan, and I am well pleased by you. I say, I love you, Ethan. I love you so much. My heart's going to burst. And when you do the things that you do, it makes me smile. It makes me laugh. It makes me so excited that I get to be your father. That's what God says about his son. And because of his son's sacrifice in your place, if you believe in him and you cling to that sacrifice, God the Father says the same thing about you. He is pleased by you. So you know the gospel, but have you given your life to the gospel? Have you turned from sin, the very thing that Christ died to free you from, the thing that we once loved more than anything in the world, and now we have an affection for Christ? It doesn't mean we're perfect, but it means now we hate the things that we used to love. We hate our sin. We don't want to walk in it anymore, even though we struggle with it. Romans 7, we're fighting to love Christ more than anything in this world. That's what discipleship is. Constantly encourage each other. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Follow Christ. Do you know him as your good shepherd? If you do, all these things will be true for you this morning. If you don't, can I plead with you? Today is the day of redemption. Today is the day to repent, to turn from sin, to trust in the Savior. It's there. He cried out on the cross. It's finished. The work has been done by him, not by us. We're not trying to be better people. That won't get us anywhere. Every other religion tries that and every other religion fails. Jesus Christ is the only way, the only truth, the only life. And nobody comes to the Father except through him. So go through him and his finished work on the cross. If he is your shepherd this morning, then you are a sheep. The Lord is your shepherd and therefore that makes you a sheep. And when the Bible calls Jesus the good shepherd and calls us his sheep for those who trust in him, it is a well-meant spiritual insult. It's a very well-intended, very important, well-meant spiritual insult. We are sheep. Sheep are not smart animals. One shepherd, a literal shepherd who then became a pastor, says it this way. A sheep is a stupid animal. It loses its direction continually in a way that a cat or a dog never does. And even when you find lost sheep, the lost sheep rushes to and fro and will not follow you home. So when you find it, you must seize it, throw it to the ground, tie its two front legs and two hind legs together, throw it over your shoulder and carry it home. They have absolutely no defenses. Their defense literally is when they're afraid that they might be being attacked by an animal, they just seize up and fall over and hope that the animal leaves them alone. They have no defenses. They're hopeless. They're helpless. They wander away all the time and need to be found. That's why Jesus gives the parable that he gives us, the one sheep wandering away, leaving the 99. Sheep are incredibly stupid animals, needing to be rescued consistently every day, needing to be rescued thoroughly, being led by a shepherd who loves them. If the shepherd doesn't love a sheep, that sheep will die. If the shepherd says, I'm done with you, I've had enough, do your own thing. That sheep is a goner. But if you are a sheep following the great shepherd, you have a shepherd who will care for your every need, who will take care of you, who will tend to you, and who does everything for you that you could never do for yourself. That's why David says, since the Lord is my shepherd, middle of verse 2, I shall not want. I shall not want. Now this 
translation, most of your Bibles probably say this exactly. They wanted to keep it in the old Englishy way of talking because so many people memorized it that they didn't want to just switch it and change it. But this translation is really not a helpful translation. It sounds like there are no desires that I have. I shall not want. That's not at all what it says. In fact, this, the true translation of this verse leaves room for desires going completely unmet. What this verse says is not, I don't have desires that are not being met. You could write in your Bible or in your notes, it's literally, there is nothing that I need that I don't have. There's nothing that I need. Wants is a need. I don't have any needs that are not being met in Christ. There are a lot of things that I want that I don't have. But there's nothing that I need that I lack because Jesus is my good shepherd. The implications of this are absolutely huge. This is not a prosperity gospel text. It leaves out the prosperity. You can totally have nothing except for Jesus. And if you have Jesus, you have everything you need. If you have Christ as your shepherd, you have everything you need. And what flows out of Christ is all that you need to live, to glorify him, and to encourage others. That's why we sing the song, All I Have is Christ. We don't sing that begrudgingly. We don't sing, all I have is Christ, and it stinks, and I wish I had more. We sing, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Praise the Lord, because all I have is Christ, all I need is Christ, that's it. I have everything that I need. I have no wants as far as nothing that I need that I'm lacking. And then David kind of fleshes that out for us. Verse 2, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He forces me to lie down in them. So the great shepherd does two things. Number one, he finds the green pasture for the sheep. We could never find the green pasture on our own. We look around for truth. We look around for uh, nutrients and nutrition. And God says, it's here. It's here in the word. Put your eyes in this book and you will find nourishment. So he takes us to the green pasture and he makes us lie down. The reason that he has to do that is because a sheep will consistently be scared if they put their head down and start eating, that they're going to be eaten by a predator. So the shepherd comes over and puts his hand on the sheep's head and says, little Timmy, it's okay. There's no wolves coming today. And if they do come, I have a, a staff and I will, I'll beat them away. They won't be able to get to you. So he would take the staff and he'd nudge the back, the, the, the middle crack of the leg and, and push them down. You can lie down. You don't have to stand up. You're not going to be running anywhere. Just lay down and enjoy. Feast. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He nourishes us with the best food. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we tried to find nourishment anywhere else other than what God had to offer. And if we're honest, even now, though we have been saved, we still chase down what Jeremiah 2 says are those um, those cisterns that hold no water. We find refreshment. We try to find refreshment in sin and it never satisfies. David says, I should just go to him continually because he nourishes. He also leads me besides quiet water. He leads me beside quiet waters. So again, leading, he needs to be led, but literally in the Hebrew, it's not quiet waters or still waters as some of your translations might say. It's literally quieted waters or stilled waters, waters that have been quieted. They were at once a raging current, and the shepherd has quieted them down. 
Why? Because a sheep would either do one of two things if you come to a river that is a raging torrent of a river. If it's a huge river, most sheep will not even go near it because it's loud and they're afraid and they would rather die of um, not being able to drink water than go towards the stream and try to drink against their better judgment. So they would die. They would get no water. They're too afraid to go near the raging current. But there are some sheep that um, they decide, I'm, I'm the, the exception. I can make this happen. I'm the brave one. And they would go to the water, and as they stick their head into the water, because all of the water is so, so forceful, it would grab their head and it would start, the water would start to get into their wool and start to drag them down and they would drown in the river. They'd be pulled down because their, their coat is so thick, their wool is so thick that if you get water into that, it would weigh you down and they would be drugged down the river and drown. So in order for a sheep to be able to drink water in peace in a way that they can find nourishment, they have to have stilled water. So your shepherd either has to go find an incredibly calm little brook or they have to do the work of taking rocks and making a dam, making a barrier such that the water will slow down. Above the river, it's a raging current, but below, since it has been quieted, you can drink in peace. David says, that's what my shepherd has done for me. He quiets the rivers. He stills the rivers for me. And because of that, he restores my soul. He restores my soul. That could either mean he saves me, just genuine salvation, or he refreshes me. I think it's both because salvation is refreshing, but it's an ongoing refreshment. Jesus is the the one who alone can save you, and he's the one that we go back to for refreshment, to be restored. He is the ultimate refreshment. It's interesting that The green pastures are great and the quieted waters are great, but Jesus is the one who gives the the restoration. He's the one who restores us. He says he guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He guides me. He paves the way for me. He cuts a path for me. I'm not alone. I'm not on my own. And it's all for his name's sake. It's all for his glory. It's all to bring him honor and praise and glory so that we can go to other people and say, I have an amazing shepherd. I have somebody who cares for me, who loves me. You should follow him too. As we leave 2017, we need to look back and remember our shepherd's provision in our past. We need to remember. That changes the way you live life. Remember 1 Samuel chapter 17, little boy named David. Uh, My son is named, his middle name is David, named after David. The one who wrote Psalm 23. He's most famous for the David and Goliath account. And do you remember... At um, the, the, the meeting between Goliath and David, David looks at Goliath and says, I can beat you. And he says it because he is remembering his shepherd's provision in the past. Remember, he says, the Lord's given me the ability to beat up lions, tigers, and bears, oh my. He's taken care of all of these different things. Therefore, I know that he'll enable me to take care of you as well. You're going to be easy. I've seen my shepherd do it in the past. He's going to do it again for me here. And because David remembers what God did, he has the faith and the courage to go forth in the strength that God provides in the present. We need to remember. Um, Just write down Psalm 77. That whole chapter is about remembering the provision that God has given to us 
in the past, which enables us to live differently in the present. I don't know if you journal or if you keep a diary or, or do something to remember the work that God has done in your life, but maybe 2018 is a, a great place to start keeping a journal. Um, it doesn't have to be a daily thing. Maybe it can be a weekly thing that you just look back on a Sunday night at the last week and look forward. Prayer request, how is God working in your life? What is God doing? Again, 1 Samuel chapter 7, when the Israelites get the Ark of the Covenant back from the Philistines, they do something to remember. You, you know what they do. They build that monument. That monument is called an Ebenezer. You, you see it in the scriptures. They raise an Ebenezer. An Ebenezer is a, a monument of stones put together. And the word in the Hebrew, Ebenezer, literally means up until now, the Lord has helped us. He's been my help till now, and therefore I know he's going to keep helping me. But that monument is there to remind us, look at what God did in the past. Look at what he's done. What has God done this past year that you can raise an Ebenezer for? I know just even in our church body, God's done amazing things. He's brought saints together in marriage. That's a, that's a place to raise a monument. There is new life, a, a, an imaging of the gospel through a husband and wife coming together to show forth the glory of God. God's brought saints home. He's called saints home to be with him. They've run their race. They've kept the faith. They've finished the fight. And they've entered into the joy and the rest of their master. That's an Ebenezer that we can raise up and say, we see a saint who finished well. How many times do we see people who claim the name of Christ just shipwreck their faith? We have seen in our church body saints who have finished well. We praise the Lord for that. God's granted new life. We've had babies been born who are a testimony of the kindness of God. New life being given to our church. Not just in, in babies being born, but baptisms. New life and regeneration. New members being brought in. God has done so much in our church this last year that we have memorials. We have Ebenezer's to look back and say, he's done these things and he's going to keep doing these things. Do you celebrate the victories of God in the past? And here's the amazing truth about this passage in Psalm 23. David is raising an Ebenezer, as it were, saying this is what God's done in the past, and this is all pre-cross. This is all before the cross. The cross is the greatest Ebenezer, raised by God himself to say, hey, if you ever want to question if I love you, look here and look no further. I gave my son for you. I crushed him in your place so that you wouldn't have to bear my wrath. That's the greatest Ebenezer of all. Do you look to the provision of your shepherd in the past? Second point. Number two, do you trust? You need to trust your shepherd's provision in your present trials. Do you trust the shepherd's provision in your present trials? This is verses four through five. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil because you are with me. Valley of the shadow of death, it's a Hebrew saying, it's an idiom, if you will, that, that is just referring to a place of deepest darkness. Literally, it's the valley of deepest darkness, a place where you cannot see your hand in front of your face. You don't know if anybody else is around you, and yet David says very specifically, though I cannot see if anybody's there, I know you're there. You're with me. You are with me, and that is why I fear no evil. How many times do we think, you know what, I fear no evil because the evil's been removed. I fear no evil because the trial is being lifted. 
David says, I fear no evil in the midst of the evil because you're with me. I have my good shepherd, my great shepherd. No matter what happens, I have him and I'll be okay. This is the gift of trials. This is the gift of suffering. Suffering hurts. It's never fun. But Jim Boyce says it this way, we are never so conscious of the presence of God as when we pass through life's valleys. We're, we're never so much aware of his presence. Now, I know I can say that firmly. Yeah, going through what we went through with Tyler and um, open heart surgery at, at a week old, it was an incredible trial. And, and going through it and wondering, is God going to spare his life? What's going to happen? God was never closer to us than in those moments. And those of you who have been through trials, you know this. All of you have been through trials to a certain degree, and you know this to be true. His nearness is your good. Jim Boyce goes on to say, it's important to note that the valley of the shadow of death is as much God's right path for us as the green pastures and the quieted waters. That is, the Christian life is not always tranquil, nor, as we say, a mountaintop experience. God gives us valleys also, and it is in the valleys with their trials and their dangers that we develop character. The valley of the shadow of death is not an accident. God isn't looking and saying, oh, I, I made a mistake. I wish that you hadn't gone in there. We'll get you out. It'll be okay. He's the one who guides you. He's the one who says, this is going to be challenging, but I'm going to be with you. And I'm using this for your good and for my glory. Remember Jesus being uh, baptized. When he comes up out of the water, the spirit descends like a dove. He is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And the very first thing that the Holy Spirit does in Jesus is to take him to the wilderness and say, okay, you have a trial. You're going to be tempted by the devil. The Gospels very clearly tell us it's the Spirit who brings him to the wilderness. It's not an accident. And so if you're in the middle of a trial, you're in the middle of a valley of, of deepest darkness. It's not an accident. God is weeping with you and he's working for you. And you can fear no evil because he is with you. He goes on to say, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Your rod, that's the little stick that the shepherd would use to bop the sheep on the nose and say, hey, you're going the wrong way. You need to move this direction. He would also um, fight off enemies with it. But that was mostly used for the staff, your rod, the little direction. Hey, move this way. Stop going that way. Discipline is comfort. Just please know that your rod is an, an instrument of discipline, and David says discipline is what comforts me. You can read Psalm 119, and David says that it's a good thing that you brought me back through discipline, through adversity, through trial, so that I could feast on your word again. It's a good thing. Nobody likes discipline when they're going through it in the moment, but it's for our good. Hebrews 12 says that if you're a child of God, you're going to be disciplined, and it's for your good. Proverbs tells us that the father who does not love his child will not discipline his child. Our father loves us and he will discipline us. And we have the choice to see it as, oh, stop doing that. Or this is for my good and it's for my comfort. Your rod, your disciplinary measure, it comforts me. And your staff, this is mainly protection. It's guidance, it's direction, it's fighting off enemies. This is what that candy cane represented with the staff that we talked about last week. It's for my comfort and for my good. 
You take care of me and you take care of everything else around me. But notice what David says next, verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So David says, I'm in the middle of the valley of deepest darkness, and I would definitely like out. I want the evil to be gone, but it's okay. You're with me, and I have comfort because you are with me. And then he says, one of the comforts that you give to me is to give me a table to feast at in the midst of my enemies. If you're anything like me, I'm not enjoying the table and the feasting until the enemies are gone. Get the enemies away, and then I can enjoy myself. But David says this, in the midst of the enemies, I have a great shepherd who will take care of me. You don't have to get the enemies away. I can enjoy you in the middle of the evil that I'm going through. Sometimes our prayer in the midst of trials is just, God, get me out of here. I want out. And God leaves us in the middle of the deepest darkness. Sometimes we just say, I want my enemies destroyed. And God prepares the table with the enemies there, standing by, watching In the middle of the valley of deepest darkness, what is your first reaction as you cry out to God? Remember in Mark chapter 4 when the disciples are in the boat with Jesus on the Sea of Galilee and and Jesus falls asleep in the boat and there's a huge storm, a huge hurricane that hits. Remember what the disciples say when they wake Jesus up? They say, teacher, do you even care that we are perishing. You must not. You must not even care that we're dying because if you did care, you would take care of the storm. You would have done something about this or better yet, you wouldn't even let us get into this mess. So often we do that. We say, God, life is painful. It hurts. Do you even care? And I love what David says. He says, oh, I know you care. I've seen what you've done in the past. I remember your provision in the past, so I know you're going to take care of me. I know that the trial that's going on is not because you don't love me or because you're not powerful enough. You can still raging rivers. You can take care of all the things around me. So I know this isn't because you don't love me. It's not because you're not powerless. It's because you love me that you're allowing me to go through this. You take care of me in the midst of the storm for a reason, for a reason. So he says, you prepare a table before me. You've anointed my head with oil. This is a a near Eastern practice to eliminate lice or other bugs. It would, if you pour it on an animal that has bugs, it would suffocate all the animals. It's cleanliness. You clean me. My cup overflows. I have provision. I have luxury, even in the midst of the valley of deepest darkness. You take care of me. I'm having a meal, a bountiful feast in the middle of the valley of deepest darkness. 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter says it this way, cast your cares on him because he cares for you. Do you run to your great shepherd knowing he is working for your good? I know sometimes it doesn't feel like that, but he is. Do you run to him knowing that with confidence and saying, okay, what good are you producing? The Bible tells us clearly what good God is producing in our lives in the midst of the trials that we go through. Cling to those. Cling to those. So as you look back on 2017, maybe it was green pastures all the way through. Cling to those moments 
as a pointer to the goodness of your good shepherd that you will cling to throughout the valleys. Maybe you look back on 2017 and you see a lot of valleys, more valleys than green pastures. Trust your good shepherd. He will take care of you. He is with you. Cling to him and not to relief. Because as you cling to him, you'll have everything you need. The Lord is my shepherd. I have nothing that I need that I'm lacking because of him. Thirdly and finally, verse 6, we need to rest assured in our shepherd's provision in the future. So we need to rest assured in our shepherd's provision in the future because we see his provision in the past, we see his provision in the present, and we can rest assured in the way that he's going to work in the future. I call this biblical optimism. Biblical optimism. Verse 6, even though he's in the middle of the valley of the shadow of death, the valley of deepest darkness, he says this, surely, assuredly, this is confidently so. I know this will happen. Goodness and loving kindness will follow me. Surely, with confidence, I know this is going to happen. What's going to happen? Number one, goodness. Goodness, the goodness of God, not harm, not evil, not wickedness, his goodness and all that he is in his holiness, his love and good to you, to those who are his sheep. His goodness is going to follow me. His loving kindness, that's mercy. That's the word in Hebrew is hesed, the faithful covenant-keeping love of God. My favorite definition for hesed is when the one to whom should get nothing by God. He deserves nothing from God, but God lavishes everything upon that person. That's hesed. You deserve, I deserve nothing from God, and yet God lavishes everything upon us in a covenant-keeping relationship. David says those two things, his goodness and his mercy, his hesed loving kindness will follow me. It's in the, the plural, the goodnesses and the loving kindnesses of God. They're going to follow me. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. This is the verse that changed my love of biblical languages. Studying Hebrew is incredibly challenging. Um, it's very precise language, very technical, very difficult. I had no enjoyment of it whatsoever as I was going through it for about a year and a half. Struggled, struggled, just trying to get through it. And then this was the moment. I had to translate Psalm 23. And as I was translating it, I came down to this verse. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me. And I did a word study on that word follow. I'd always had in my mind this idea that as I'm wandering doing my thing. God's wandering behind me. Wherever I go, yeah, he's following me. Kind of like a, a little yappy dog that just, just kind of yaps along and follows me where I'm walking. And then I started to look up this word in other uses in Hebrew and found that this word is most often translated persecute or pursue, to hunt, to chase down. So literally, surely goodness and loving kindness will pursue me, will hunt me down, will find me at all costs all the days of my life. That changed my life as I was studying original languages. It changed my understanding of why they're so crucial to find these nuances that change my understanding of who God is. And the next two and a half to three years that I studied Hebrew absolutely changed my love for original languages and my desire to dive into them because of this one word, follow. You see, God's not wandering behind us, kind of at a distance, 
watching where we go and you know, I'll follow behind. God is hunting us down with goodness and mercy. No matter where we are, even if we're in the valley of deepest darkness where nobody can see us, we can't even see the hand in front of our face, he will chase us down, find us no matter where we are, and love us with goodness and with kindness. There's no place that we can go out of the presence of the goodness and loving kindness of God. If you're a believer, if you're his sheep, and it won't follow you today and maybe mess up tomorrow, it will follow you, it will hunt you down every single day of the rest of your life. This is biblical optimism. And David says this as he's in the middle of a valley. I can't see where I am, but you can, and you're hunting me down with love. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So not only will goodness and mercy hunt me down in the middle of my trials, not despite my trials, within the trial, but also I will make it home safely. This could have one of those near-far interpretations. I will go back to the tabernacle. I will dwell um, in, in a place in the house of God on an earthly sense with the people of God, as maybe David's running away from Saul at this point or going through something where he's unable to be with the people of God. But I think more than that, I, I think this is the, the far interpretation of I will dwell in God's house one day. When I close my eyes in this life, I will open them in the next in the glory and the presence of God and I will stay there forever. No more valleys of deepest darkness. No more trials. No more pain. He will wipe every tear from my eye, and I will be safe, home, at peace and at rest in the arms of my good shepherd. The average person has three negative thoughts for every one positive thought. And when we talk with our families, it, it actually goes up. I don't know if you experienced this at Christmas time. You hang out with your family, it goes up from three negative thoughts for every one positive thought to nine out of ten statements being a negative statement or a critical statement. Are you an optimistic person or are you a pessimistic person? And, and at this point, I want to ask you not in a general sense, but in a very specific biblical sense. What is your outlook of the future? Is it one where you think nothing's nothing good is going to happen. I know it. it's just all going downhill. We hear that so often in a very nostalgic way, don't we? Oh, the good times, the golden days were better back then. And, and now the, look at the world. It's awful. If you look at the history of when Paul's writing Ephesians or 1 Corinthians, the world doesn't look that much better than the world that we're living in. I think that people probably knew a little bit less. We know we have the information of what's going on. But there's nothing new under the sun. It's just as evil back then as it is now. And as the days get darker, as we are a city on a hill, we'll just shine all the more brightly. Are you a biblically optimistic person or a pessimistic person? We sang a song from uh, Fanny Crosby this morning. She was blinded by childhood in um, an accident by an incompetent doctor. She died in 1915, but not before leaving us over 9,000 hymns, 9,000 hymns. And they're so biblically optimistic. Here's one of them. Um, obviously, we sang, this is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Just perfect submission. All is at rest. Listen to the way that she speaks with such superlatives. Everything that I'm going through is awesome. I don't know about you, but sometimes the, the most biblically optimistic people 
can, can just infuriate you, right? Like, stop being so happy. The, the, don't you see the world out there? We need people like Fanny Crosby. We need them in our church. We need them in the, the universal church who says, it's all, it's all going to be good. I'm on God's side. He's my good shepherd. I have nothing that I need that I'm lacking, and I know I'm going to make it to the end. Listen to Fanny Crosby. She writes this, Oh, what a happy soul am I, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world contented I will be. Though I can't see, I've been blinded by an incompetent doctor. I'm resolved that in this world I'll be content. Many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. Time out. I think that she meant to say, everybody else enjoys eyesight and I don't. But she says, many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. She wrote those words when she was 12 years old and she trusted in her Savior until her dying day and entered the house of the Lord, dwelling in his goodness and kindness forever. We have so many pictures of that, whether a Johnny Erickson Todd or whether an R.C. Sproul who just finished his race and entered into the presence of the Lord a couple weeks ago. We have so many examples of people who live optimistically, biblical optimism. The reason that we can do that is because we have the cross as our Ebenezer, and we see very clearly our shepherd's provision for our greatest need in the past and every other need that we have. We trust his provision in the present, and we are assured, confident of his provision in the future. We've had an amazing year as a church, and we have another really fun year ahead of us. God's going to do great things. We're excited to follow him on this adventure. We don't know where we're going to land, where we're going to be, but we know nothing changes for us. Our God's goodness and kindness are chasing us down, and we want to take that to other people and say, do you trust in my good shepherd? Do you love him? We want to work as a church on evangelism and discipleship. We want to work in such a way that we are constantly pointing people to the great shepherd. Why? Turn to Revelation 6. Or Revelation 7. We'll end here. Revelation chapter 7. We'll end here. Why do we pursue Jesus as our good shepherd? Why are we pleading with others to follow him? Revelation chapter 7, verse 16. They, his sheep, will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat, because the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. We follow our great shepherd because our great shepherd is himself a lamb who is leading us and led us in the greatest possible way, the greatest display of love ever imaginable. Our lamb was slaughtered at the cross while we were in our sins, while we were dead in our sins and trespasses, while the wrath of God abided on us, while we still hated God and were his enemies. Our lamb was slaughtered willingly, laying down his life so that you and I could be reconciled to the Father. He did that in the past, and that work that Jesus accomplished at the cross is working in us every moment of every day until he finishes that work in glory. 
So let's follow our good shepherd. Let's remember his provision this past year. And let's get excited about his provision for this next year, trusting that no matter what happens, he's working for our good, for his glory, and his goodness and his loving kindness are pursuing us and hunting us down every second of every day. God, we are so grateful that we have that confidence because of the cross. We have the confidence of your goodness towards us because of Jesus, because of what he did at Calvary. And so we want to go back there. We want to end 2017 as a church by going back to the gospel, remembering the Ebenezer that you yourself raised in front of our eyes so that we can look back and we can see if God did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him freely give us all things? He's done the hardest thing. Therefore, it's obvious that there's nothing that we need that we will be lacking. So God, please work in us as a church on an individual basis and corporately together as a whole to trust in the provision of Christ at the cross. And may the gospel be our foundation, our hope, our glory, our exaltation, and our motivation to trust in 2018 and beyond. We love you. We trust you. And we will follow you until we close our eyes in this life and open them in the next to stare at the glory of our great shepherd for all eternity. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen.